You can turn in your copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 9. This is the fourth week in a row. Uh, we have been in these handful of verses. It'll be the last one, and we'll turn a corner next Sunday and move on to a different text. Uh, but there's much in here. So if you can find the last several verses of Matthew chapter 9, that's where we will be. I wanted to, to mention a few things before I start the sermon, though. One, I just wanted to, uh, as I mentioned last week, thank you for your generosity in helping us end the fiscal year the way that we did in a real place of strength. We ended at the end of July in a very strong manner, and we're starting a new fiscal year. And so I want to encourage you as we start into a new budget cycle, a new year, to continue your generosity, to take from what the Lord's entrusted to you uh, through uh, resource and to, to donate it gladly, willingly, uh, as, a, as an offering to him to help fund things like Chris and Abby Jones working in Papua New Guinea and, and ministries that we even have here locally. And so I want to encourage you uh, to continue in that. And then one, just seeing uh, Jackson up here reminded me I wanted to mention that uh, I thoroughly enjoyed getting to go to youth camp uh, with some of our middle and high schoolers and uh, several parents and, and volunteers over the last week. I left right after church Sunday last week and we got back Wednesday night, but that was an absolute joy uh, to get to spend time with them, uh, to see uh, the things that the Lord's doing in their hearts as young men and women and to even see uh, one of the most encouraging things to me was there's a, there was another pastor of one of the other churches that was represented there and he just came over to me, one of the evening that just said how thankful he is for our group specifically and he mentioned how uh, and he didn't have time to elaborate on it, but how he has gotten to see amongst the middle and high schoolers in his church uh, the way that they've observed certain patterns and ways of life in a good way that they've seen in the young men and women in our church and their heart for the Lord their desire even as young people or emerging young adults to follow after Christ and he was saying what a blessing it's been for their church which has comparatively less number of students and a little bit further back down the path of faith, he said, what an encouragement it has been to uh, have them be able to rub shoulders with our students, and I got to see gain for our students and getting to spend time uh, with those other young people and the men and women investing in them there. So that was a, a sweet, sweet time. Uh, I'll make a plug next year for it, but I'd encourage any parents of students to consider going next year as well. It's a wonderful feature of this camp is that they invite parents to come along as well, and you get some small snippets of time throughout the week to spend time with your son or daughter uh, and to pray with them, process with them. That was a really sweet uh, dimension of the week. All right, hope that you have found Matthew chapter 9. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the old game show. I think it's actually still on, uh, but of Family Feud. Do you know how when they say, like, they pulled 100 people and they fill in the blank this or answer this question? I was thinking of this. If we were just to, to do a poll of, like, 100 average Americans and we were to ask them to fill in the blank of this, the Lord of the blank... I think I could guess probably what the top three answers would be. I would feel with confidence. Uh, maybe you could think of some other ones. My guess would be the list would include number one, I think by far would be The Lord of the Rings. Uh, the, those books uh, now made into movies aren't just well known amongst Christian circles. I've, I've learned they're just very well known in the world in general. So I think that would be big number one. Uh, you can hear the ding in your head if you know what I'm talking about uh, from the game show. I think number two would be the Lord of the Flies, which uh, if you're like my age or older, you probably, uh, or maybe you're younger than me, I don't know, but maybe you had to read that book in your adolescence in school at some point. Strange book, by the way, but Lord, the Lord of the Flies. Uh, then the third one, I think, uh, and this may age some of us too, and maybe lower on the list, would be, I, I think of at least, and don't judge me for this, the Lord of the Dance. 
uh, by Michael Flatley. It's like this Irish musical and dance production. Some of you know what, I'm, a few of you at least, I can see by the chuckles, you know what? It would be low on the list, okay? It'd be like one of those has like three or something like that out of the hundred. Uh, but what I don't think would be on the list is what we're gonna talk about today. Uh, I don't think this would make the cut. The Lord of the Harvest. Uh, that is a, a phrase that we actually only see two times in the entirety of the Bible, and we're gonna read one of them today. Uh, but it, it's a title that Jesus himself used to give to the Heavenly Father, where he called him the Lord of the Harvest. And what we're gonna do this morning is take time to read the text of this title is found in, and we're gonna meditate on that phrase together, at least briefly, of why did Jesus call the Father that, the Lord of the Harvest, and like what significance does that have for us, particularly as we think about church planting. What we've been talking about the last few Sundays, what we're gonna finish talking about next Sunday is this idea of church planting, of trying to plant, try to start a church. It's what we've done in Papua New Guinea with Chris and Evie Jones and their team. It's what we're seeking to do over the next several years in the town of North Manchester and the surrounding area there. And so we wanted to take some time over these few weeks before we get back into the, the rhythms of the school year and start through the book of Hebrews. We wanted to take uh, five weeks and talk about church planting and why we do it, how we do it, uh, those types of things. And so uh, we've got, if you've missed some of the weeks, if you've been gone for the summer, I think we have a slide that at least shows the titles of the subjects we've talked about. Week one, we talked about the motive for church planting uh, that we talked about from this very text that we're about to read, that the compassion for the lost should be what motivates us first and foremost is to seek to plant churches is a compassion for the lost second Sunday uh, Adam Pennard preached for us uh, on a subject that we called the message of church planting and he, he used this metaphor that Jesus used in this text of a harvest and he talked about how the seed of church planting is the proclaiming of the good news of Christ. That that's what we take with us into the field. That's what we plant. That's what God uses to give growth. Last week, uh, we talked about the laborers in the harvest or the workers in the harvest. Again, pulling a phrase from that we're about to hear Jesus say, we talked about how in church planting, our work is necessary. We have to be part of it. If God's going to see people saved, if God's going to see churches started, it's going to be including the work of his people out in the field. But today we're going to look at this phrase, the Lord of the harvest, and the one who oversees it all, the one who enables it all. Uh, because it's not just workers who go do everything and make it happen. Underneath and behind our work is God's work, and that's most important. And so we're going to look at that today. Next Sunday we're going to end the series looking at some texts in the book of Acts about the method of church planting. What does that look like to actually do? Like what steps do we actually take? Who sends people? Who, how do they go about this work? How do we see success uh, unfold? fold. And so we'll get to look more at that next Sunday. So I'm going to read this text uh, for us again this morning. This will be the fourth time we've heard it, four Sundays in a row, but there's so much in it uh, that we wanted to not rush through it. But I'm going to read this text, uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. And even if this is the fourth sermon you've heard on this text, I'd encourage you to listen attentively to this message uh, as Matthew records uh, some actions and statements of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So listen with me uh, to Matthew nine thirty-five to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them 
because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. These verses, which we've now heard four weeks in a row, they depict the heart of Jesus for the lost, right? That he had compassion upon those that he would come across who were harassed and helpless and shepherdless. We see his compassion for the lost. And we see in these last couple sentences that we started looking at last Sunday, we see Jesus use this metaphor, like this picture of a harvest, of a field of workers out in it, uh, to depict not just a lesson about grain or an orchard or something like that, but to pick picture something about the kingdom of God, the, the bringing in of people, of men and women and children into the kingdom of God like a spiritual harvest, uh, that his disciples would go out into the towns. Eventually, they'd go out into the nations to see a harvest of people brought into the kingdom. And I appreciate this title that Jesus gives to the heavenly father here, where he gives him this title, the Lord of the Harvest. This would have been unusual. Jesus had not yet referred to the Father that way. Uh, the only other time in the New Testament that title is used is in the book of Luke, and it's recording this exact same thing that Jesus said. So it was this one time that we're aware of that Jesus called the Heavenly Father the Lord of the harvest. He usually would simply call him God, or he would call him the Lord, or the Lord your God, or some combination of those. He, Jesus had even started to teach his disciples to refer to him as their heavenly father, or our father who art in heaven. He'd already been teaching them to refer to him that way. But here he uses this title, the Lord of the harvest. And so I want us to, to zero in on that and contemplate what did Jesus mean? What's what's within that title, within that name of God, uh, to contemplate its significance for us. And I'm going to use two simple statements uh, to unpack what I think Jesus means by that phrase, the Lord of the harvest. And they're going to be very simple, um, but we'll go through these. The first one is that he owns the field, and the second one is that he gives the yield. That he owns the field, and he gives the yield. And so I want to talk first about this idea that God, the Lord of the harvest, he owns the field. This is very important for us to know as we think about our own missional work, as we think about going overseas, or as we think about going to the next cubicle and, and talking to someone about Christ. It's important for us to know that God owns the field, that it all belongs to him, and every person within it belongs to him. Notice a couple things in the text that we read this morning that would indicate to us that God owns the field. Using this metaphor, this picture of Jesus, there's some things he says here that show us God owns the field. First one, if you look in verse 38, Jesus tells his disciples to pray earnestly to him. Uh, to pray earnestly to him. The reason he's telling them to ask things, even to earnestly ask things of God, is because God is the one who calls the shots, right? God, we wouldn't be earnestly pleading with him if God had no sway, if God didn't own the field, if God didn't get to make decisions about what's grown in the field and how much and, and those types of decisions. Everything in this metaphor, everything in the world, everything in the universe runs through God, right? He is the one who controls it all. That's why we pray to him, right? It's not just to make a suggestion, but we're making an appeal to the one who owns everything. 
the, the, the one who has possession of all things. So the fact that Jesus even says to pray to him, to pray earnestly to him, shows that he owns the field. But even more than that, it's not just that he owns it in some like vague sense. He owns it even in the sense of he manages it. He runs it, right? Because Jesus says to pray earnestly to him, to send out laborers, right? So God the Father, this Lord of the harvest, part of what that means is that he's the one who controls who goes in and out of his field. He's the one who governs, okay, you go out into my field, you can work on my behalf. Uh, He doesn't just allow people to work in his field, right? Like he doesn't just say, oh yeah, like whoever, like you can come in whenever you want. Like it's almost, you can imagine like a gate that goes out into his field where he governs who he sends out into his field, right? It's not just something he observes from afar, but something he owns, something he manages. He sends people into it, Jesus says. And the last phrase, the most clear phrase that we could easily miss uh, because it's right at the tail end of the text, the most clear indicator that the field belongs to God, that he owns it, is that Jesus says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, right? Like he's making it very clear. It's not just into the harvest. He says, pray that he would send people into his harvest. Like it belongs to him. Like he owns the field. He owns everything that will ever grow in it. Every bit of that field belongs to him. He's the owner of the field. He's the owner of this planet. He's the owner of the universe. He's the owner of every small field uh, in here and in between, right? Like he owns the field. He owns all the fields. The harvest is his. And the the effect that that should have on us is significant. When we remember this, that him being the Lord of the harvest means he owns the field. The effect that that should have on us is that we should work in his field with humility. As we are entrusted with the responsibility, whatever our role is, to go out into his field, to work amongst his crops, to, to reap his harvest, we should work in his field with humility, right? If we follow this idea that he's the owner, that the harvest is his, what that means for us is we are like farmhands, right? Like, like we are at best, we are tenant farmers, right? Who, who God owns the field and any work we do within it is entrusted to us. It's not ours to do with what we want. It's not ours to, to plow and to sow seed however we want. It is his field. We are farmhands or tenant farmers who work for him. We're sent by him. We're entrusted by him uh, with working in that field. And I don't know how many of you like the boss that you have, uh, like the people that you work for. Uh, Hopefully many of you do, but I I know uh, some of you likely do not. But think about what a boss we have, what an owner, what a a master, so to speak, we have, that the one who owns the harvest field that we get sent out into is God. Like that, that we get to work for him. We get the privilege of not just working for some wonderful person, but who has their flaws. We get to work for the perfect one. Get to work on behalf of the one who created us, the one who loves us, the one who superintends all things. We get to represent him. We get to report to him. Uh, uh, that is a, a privilege that we have as workers in his field. We should work as we go about the work of evangelism, as we go about the work of trying to start a church, that long, difficult work in North Manchester, as we send men and women to go work overseas, we should work as ones who acknowledge his ownership. We should work according to his directions, 
right? Like we work based on how he tells us to work. We don't just enter the field kind of brazenly saying, oh, I'll I'll figure it out. Like I'll do what I want to do. Like God has told us how to go about working in his field. It's not just a free for all for us to figure out. He's told us what to prioritize. He's told us what message to bring. He's told us what the end goal is. He's told us all of these things. He's made promises to us. And so as we go out into his field, we are to work according to his standards. That's an act of humility to just say, we're not trying to just do things how we see fit. And we should see, if we remember the ownership of God over these fields, whether it's Warsaw or North Manchester or the pay people of Papua New Guinea, like as we think about these fields and remember his ownership, that, the effect that that should have on us is that we should humbly start to see those fields the way he sees them. That they're not just some random accumulation of people or some random place on a map. These fields, this field belongs to him. Like he deeply cares for it. There's some owners of companies who've gotten so detached from their company that they really just care about the bottom line. They just care in a detached way about the the company or the operation of their company. That is not how God is as an owner of these fields. Like God cares more deeply about the people on this planet than you or I ever could. Like he cares far more deeply, infinitely more deeply about these people that he has created, even some of these people that he has bought with the blood of his son. He cares about this field deeply, and we don't just go into these fields just recklessly and carelessly and casually. Like, it is a weighty, wonderful thing that we get to go with the good news of Jesus to these people in this field that belongs to God, and so we should learn to see the field, see the people the way that God sees them, that every stalk, every tree, every vine matters. Every person matters in the field of God. They all belong to him. And we should work, the last thing I'll say under this heading, is that we should work with integrity and diligence in this field. Uh, It's not just that we follow the rules and we just kind of casually go about it, but we should work as people with integrity uh, and we should work with, with strength, with zeal in this field. We shouldn't just see it as some casual stroll. Like this is something that we are to put sweat equity into, right? Something that we're to invest in because he is the one who owns it. He is the one who sent us out. He is the one that this all ultimately belongs to. We're not working for ourselves. We're not self-employed in this field, right? We're not even working for a pastor. We're not working for a parent. We're not working for a life group leader. We are working for God himself in these fields, and that should affect even the manner in which we engage with people. It should make us selfless. It should make us loving. It should make us sacrificial about how we spend our time, how we spend our resources, how we spend our lives, because he owns the field. We, we work for his smile, not for the approval of men. So this Lord of the harvest that Jesus refers to, the Heavenly Father, he owns the field, and that should make us humble, right? That should lead us to to act in humility as we go about working in his field. But the second point that I want to unpack a bit more even as we think about this Lord of the harvest and what Jesus means when he uses that title is not just that, that God owns the field, but he also gives the yield. Like he's the one who actually brings the life. Like he's the one who actually grows the crops. He's the one who actually creates the harvest in the first place, right? So he gives the yield as the Lord of the harvest. 
And so we looked last week at how important and vital it is, even from this text where Jesus says, guys, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. And he doesn't just say, like, get creative about how you work. He says, pray for more workers, right? Pray for more laborers. That is essential. Like, that has to be. There has to be people like us who are going with the good news of the gospel of Jesus about the cross and the resurrection. We have to go out. That's non-negotiable. Uh, but there has been this pattern throughout human history, even from the very beginning of the Bible, that even as human beings like us work for God, like God is the one who has worked before and underneath, like in deeper ways that we cannot do. He, he makes things grow that we can't make grow. Like he, he gives life that we cannot, right? I want to, to take you back to the very Garden of Eden for a moment to show that this pattern was embedded into the physical world. Uh, and then it's also true in the spiritual world as well, that, that God works before, God works underneath, God works in deeper ways uh, to give life and to give growth that we simply cannot do, no matter how hard we work. So th I think these will be on the screen, but if you go back all the way to the beginning of time, Genesis chapter 2, uh, and I, I go back to the first few chapters of Genesis fairly often because there's so much there uh, of how God created this world and these like trajectories that he starts uh, of how he he relates to us. But in Genesis 2, there's this more detailed account of how God created the first human, and the first humans even. And, and some of the details in here I think are really significant. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and then 15, uh, the narrator records this for us, that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then this is verse 15, where it continues and says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Right? So you see right here at the very beginning of human history, the very first human being, uh, that God is the one who planted the garden, right? Or you may think of it as like an orchard that has all these trees that grow up there. God is explicitly stated as the one who planted it, right? He's, it's not that Adam uh, got sent out and planted this garden and just slowly watches it grow over years and years and years. God planted it. God gave life to it, right? The, the verses say that the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food, right? Like God's the one who gave these trees life. And we know that in, in physical world, right? Uh, that, that God is the one who makes these things grow. But you see then he takes this human that he made and he puts him into that very garden. He puts him into that very orchard to do work. Like to actually work on the things that, that God has started to give life to. He puts him there to work it and keep it, right? So, and eventually Eve is brought into the garden as well, uh, to, and they're both to work there. And Adam is not, and Eve is not just standing there like, I don't know what kind of trees were there. We often think of them as apple trees, but who knows, or maybe it was vines, and who else knows what all was grown there. But I know Adam and Eve were not just standing there like willing these like oranges to pop out of the tree, right? Or like willing this vine to grow up out of the ground. Like God was the one who did that, and then they they work to, to pluck them. They work to tend to them or to prune them, things like that. But God always has been in the physical world, the one who gives life. And then human beings work to tend to it. They work in that harvest, but God's the giver of life. And that is true, not just in the physical world, 
but it's even more true in the spiritual world, in the, in the unseen domain, the supernatural realm of life, right? God is the one who gives spiritual life. Like God is the one, whether you're thinking of an individual convert, like even like yourself, like who comes to faith in Jesus, who's born again, God's the one who gave you life. God's the one, it's not your mom, it's not your dad, it's not the pastor or person who even told you the good news of Jesus. Those people did not give you life. The Holy Spirit gave you life. Uh, And that is vital for us to remember that he's the giver of life. And we cannot will someone to become a Christian any more than we can will a tree to grow up from the ground, right? Like we cannot will a church to be grown in North Manchester or amongst the pay people or any other place that we send people to any more than we can will a vine to grow up out of the ground, right? Can you imagine the absurdity? I'm not a farmer, but I can at least imagine the absurdity if there was a farmer who has, even if they're the one who's planted seeds, who is now there just standing like cheering it on, like coaxing it up like out of the ground, like you can do it, like come on, like trying to appeal to them, like come out of the ground, like little plant, you can do it. Like that would be silly and absurd and you would want to take that person to go talk to somebody, right? To get some help. Because we farmers know better than anyone the limits of what they're capable of, right? Like they know just intrinsic to their work. That's why I think it's used a lot, this metaphor by Jesus and even some of the apostles is that farmers know they cannot make this thing grow. Like they can do the work of tilling the ground. They can do the work of fertilizing it. They can do the work of watering it. But God and God alone is the one who can give life to an individual person and the one who can breathe life even in creating of a church. Like he is the one who gives the yield, right? Farmers know the potential of futility, right? There's reasons we have a big farmer's insurance company in our town, right? It's because there's there's things that are outside of our control. We can't insure that things grow, that, that life comes, but God can, right? Like he is the one who actually can ensure that there's a yield, that there's actual life that comes, that there's fruit that grows, right? The apostle Paul famously, uh, who, who was like the, if you want to think of the church planter, like par excellence, like the, the guy who planted so many churches, it's hard to even keep track of. Even he wrote this. This is a famous text from the letter we call 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. He asked these rhetorical questions about himself and this other man named Apollos, who was a famous preacher who, who seems to have preached there even in Corinth. Paul said, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Like talking to the third person. What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And then he recounts what their roles were. I planted, Apollos watered, but hear this. But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. That is good news for us, that that God is the one who gives growth. Our work is important, right? The man who wrote that had spent years in that town, like he's writing that to. It's not that he just did some small amount of work. Like he had invested years, months, blood, sweat, and tears of his life into that very church that he's writing that to. But he's saying in comparison to what God does, and you compare what me and Apollos have done, we have done nothing. 
Like we did nothing to give life to you. God did everything. He used us. We're servants through whom you believe. But God's the one who made you believe. God's the one who gave life to you. And that is freeing for us to know uh, that, that our work is not what everything hinges on. It has to be. Like we have to go. But God's the one who gives growth. He's the one who gives the yield. And the primary effect that that should have on us when we remember that God as the Lord of the harvest gives the yield is that we should work his field with hope. We should work in his field with hope, with confidence that God actually can and will bring life. That God actually will see individuals converted. That God will grow up a church where we send people to start churches. And I say that we have no absolute guarantee that every single effort we do is going to be bringing of significant fruit, right? There are some works that we seek to start that in the Lord's providence he keeps small, that he keeps minimal. Uh, but we, we can have hope as we go out into the field to know because it doesn't depend on us, because it depends ultimately on him, we can have deep, deep hope and confidence that God will do something amongst these people, that, that God will bring life, that God will bring uh, new eternal life to brothers and sisters in Christ who did not have it yet. There's, uh, I'll say this, keep in mind in this text that we read today, Jesus himself says the harvest is plentiful, right? Like he doesn't just say like it's possible, like there will be some stuff, some people out there who come to me, but you know it's going to be real small probably, so don't get your hopes up. Like he says the harvest is plentiful. Like there are people out there who will be saved as they hear the good news, and it's going to be many. Like there's going to be many people who come to faith in Christ. So that should stir up confidence and hope and expectation for us. Uh, not that we have guarantees of size, but we do have guarantees of God's aid, God's presence, God's help, even God's heart for the lost, and that we can know his power to save, and that should give us hope as we go out into his field. Uh, a text was brought to mind as I was preparing this the last few days since I've been home uh, from Acts chapter 18. Uh, there, there's this text, there's a few verses there in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 11, where it's this record of something that uh, the Lord gave to Paul, so, uh, something that he communicated to him through a vision about actually the very city of Corinth, who we just read his words to uh, a few moments ago. But the, the author of Acts records this interaction of the Lord with Paul himself. And he said that the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision... This is what he communicated to him. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Then hear this. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God amongst them. I love that phrase, that the Lord took time to communicate to Paul about the city of Corinth, like don't be hasty to leave. Like don't do a quick work and then leave. I have many in this city who are my people. There are many people in this very town who Christ died to save. 
that he suffered for on the cross that have yet to actually believe in him, who've yet to maybe even hear this good news yet. Stay here. Keep working in this field. Be diligent in working in this field of the city of Corinth. Keep telling them the good news. Keep tending to the field there. And many of these people will come to faith, Paul. And Paul believed him. He believed that the harvest would be plentiful there in Corinth, and he believed him enough to stay. He believed him enough to not rush out of town and leave, but to stay and to to plant his life there, work in that field of God, and God did give increase. God gave life to many men and women and children through his ministry there in Corinth. And we should have confidence as we go to places that there are many in the different towns that we go to, many in the different people groups that we send people to. There are many who Christ has died to purchase, that that he has suffered for brothers and sisters in those towns, in those communities, in those places, but they've yet to hear the good news about it. And we get the opportunity to be that herald, to go in with that good news, to tell them. But they already, before we even go, they already belong to God in a sense. God has already set his heart on them. Christ has already suffered for them. And we get to the privilege of being the the mouthpiece, the one who goes and tells them that good news. Uh, But there are many in these places. I believe there, as as long as Jesus stays in heaven, I believe there are more people that God wants to raise up from our church to go to people groups, to go to tribes, to go to places, to go to nations where there is no gospel yet, but where there are people of God who've been saved, but who need the good news to come to them. And we should have hopefulness that springs up in our heart when we know and we believe that God has people there. God intends to grow up men and women. God intends to establish churches in these communities. And that gives us hope that there are, the harvest is plentiful, that God gives the yield. God has already purchased people for himself, I believe, in North Manchester, like who will come to faith through the witness of members of our church who go down there and seek to start another work of God there. There are people who belong to him in the pay tribe who've already come to faith. There are people that probably Josh and Jackson and Colin will get to meet even this upcoming week who have already been purchased by Christ upon the cross but haven't been yet brought into the kingdom yet. But as there's field workers there, God will bring his people to salvation. God will bring life to them. And this hope is so important for us to have that God gives the yield because when we go into that work of the harvest field, if you've tried to do this at all, like to do evangelism, even amongst your own family or coworkers, if you've sought to be part of a new church plant, or if you've done mission work before, you know, even from your own experience, there is great opposition that comes against us. There's great discouragement that can come. That there are temptations to become dull, to become discouraged. There's temptations to divide us as workers in the field, to to go into faction. There's temptations to distract us with, with cares of this world. There's so many things that will rise up that will pull us away from that work, that will distract us towards lesser things, that will maybe even pull us out of the field. And it's vital that we press on in the work of evangelism, that we press on working in the field that God has entrusted to us because we are the, the ones that God uses, humanly speaking, to bring the message of life to people. And, and we have an opponent who would want to silence us, who would want to distract us, who would want to divide us, who would want to, to keep us doing anything and everything but proclaiming that good news of Christ to more who need to hear it. 
and this knowledge that God has a plentiful harvest and that God can give life, that God does give life is what will help keep us motivated to know that there are men and women and children dying without the good news, that, that are, are not even growing up out of the ground, let alone being harvested into the kingdom. We must remember that Jesus is worthy, that God is powerful, that his spirit is present and able to give life. That is what will help us press on and work. So God is the one who gives the yield. He owns the field, but he gives the yield. And I just want to mention, I don't want to pass over this before I conclude. I want to note, as we think about the, the God, the Lord of the harvest, being the one who gives the yield, I want to note that Jesus specifically calls his disciples to pray. Uh, to pray earnestly even to this Lord of the harvest. That is an important part of mission work. That's why we took several minutes to pray for them. That's why we encourage you to pray for people we've sent out into the world, to pray for ourselves as we go out into the fields here around our town. This, this hope that we have that, that God can and will give new life, that God will see a church established, is a prayerful hope. It's not just some naive, inactive hope, but it's a, a prayerful hope that we can ask we can plead with the one, earnestly plead with him, pray to him to give life. Uh, but more than that, even to give workers who will go, maybe even me, uh, to go with the good news to these people. And we can pray with confidence. We should not just pray, I can be guilty of this, but we should not just pray these dull, lifeless prayers as if we do. Do we really believe? Like that God can save people in places where he has not yet. Like do we really believe God can save my coworker who seems the furthest from the Lord that I can imagine? Do we really believe that God can see a church brought up in North Manchester? Do we really believe that God can and will save, that he has compassion on the lost and he has power to save them? Do we actually believe that? If we do, it should affect how we pray. One, we should just pray at all, asking him to work, but we should pray earnestly to him, asking him, God, take our pitiful efforts that we're giving here and please give life. Like, please see this brother or sister brought to the Lord. Please see a church established among these people. We should have a prayerful hope. And so I would appeal to you to even come to, with us tonight to pray with us at six o'clock. Uh, I love praying with our church family. I, 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 would, I long for more of you to come, to be honest. And I'm not saying that like as a, a, like a pity thing or a guilt thing, but even if you don't pray with us here, we should be a church that prays earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send workers and then to save souls. Like in our own community, in North Manchester, in Papua New Guinea, we should have a prayerful hope as we go about the work of evangelism. I want to close with an excerpt from a poem from a poet named Wendell Berry, who some of you um, may know who he is. Um, but we talked last week about the laborers in the harvest. We talked about this week the Lord of the harvest and how those things work in tandem. Uh, that our work is essential, right? It's important. But his work is the ultimate work. It's, it's the one thing that we can't do without. And this poet, Wendell Berry, uh, used this very metaphor that Jesus uses to try to express this, this balance between the necessity of our work, but ultimately the work of God that has to be underneath ours. And he said it this way. It's a little bit easier to read with your eyes than to hear aloud. So I would encourage you to, to look at it as well as I read it. But he wrote this. He said... Harvest will fill the barn. For that, the hand must ache, the face must sweat. And yet no leaf or grain is filled by work of ours. 
the field is tilled and left to grace, that we may reap, great work is done while we're asleep. And I love that. It's this poetic way of saying, our hands must ache that we've worked so hard to take the good news of Jesus to people. Our face must sweat as we've given ourselves to this task of taking the good news to people and seeking to see converts and churches established. But he acknowledges nothing happens. Baskets aren't filled just by our effort alone. Uh, that, that souls aren't saved by our effort alone. The fi- I love that he says, the field is tilled and left to grace. Like that we do the hard work of taking the good news to people and then we pray like crazy to the one person who can actually do something with it, who can actually give life, who can actually see a church established. We till the field and we leave it to grace. And so our work's important. Our work is necessary, but his work is effective, right? His and his alone is the effective work. The field is his, the yield is his. So let's work humbly and hopefully for the Lord of the harvest, amen? I wanna invite you to stand. I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna sing a closing song and then I'll leave you with a word of benediction, but let's, let's pray together. God, we are grateful, many of us in the room, that we are part of your harvest that's already been brought in. That long ago, even in eternity past, that you saw fit to write our name in the book of life. And that you sent Jesus to suffer upon the cross for our sins so that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to you, that we could even be adopted by you. God, may we uh, never let the wonder of that grow old in our hearts, that we have been a part of your harvest. But may we also... Uh, not neglect that you now have turned us into workers in your harvest, that you've transferred us now to be workers in the field who take that same good news, that same seed that brought us life. And you give the responsibility to us to take it to others, to plant it in new fields or in old ones. And God, we recognize together as individuals and as a church family that we cannot give life. We cannot see a church established just by our work alone, but that you are the one who must give life. You breathe life into a lifeless atom in the garden. You have breathed life into our lifeless souls. We pray that you would do that amongst many more. Your harvest is plentiful. May we believe that. May we act as if that is true. May we work with anticipation. May you bring an abundance of a harvest in the days ahead, in the months and weeks ahead as we, your church, seek to go out confidently, prayerfully sharing the good news. May you give a great yield. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.